Imagine that you're a parent and you have a, a son, maybe in the early 20s, late 20s, early 30s, that has just gotten on the, uh, the wrong path and now has ended up in jail. And you've been trying to encourage the son when they were before they were incarcerated to go to church to get on a different path. And so I've had occasion to meet with some of the parents uh, that have inmates in jail, and they are just hoping that their sons won't be written off, that somebody will try to reach them and encourage them to come to church and to interact and touch them. And so if you can do that, you know how appreciative those parents are, the same as we would be for one of our children. And these are all Heavenly Father's children. So, so if you can take and change one life, and if you can get one brother to get sober, and they don't, you don't get cured, but you can manage your addiction and get their posterity down a better path, then you, you have really changed a, a, a lot. One of my favorite things, and it's starting to happen more and more often here in the Cultural Hall, is when I'll put something out on social media and say, hey, I really want to talk to someone that, and then someone hears the call, answers the call, and recommends someone to us for a particular episode about that subject. This subject and this episode is awesome. It's all about what the church does inside a jail here in the state of Utah. Now, I know a lot of it will be Utah-specific, and I'm sorry because I do try and keep this from both a national and international perspective, but to hear Jim's story about how his life has been changed, about how he is helping change the life of others within the jail here in Salt Lake County in Utah is just pretty impressive, and so I wanted to share that with all of you. If you have great suggestions or are connected or are even a great episode for The Cultural Hall, I hope that you'll reach out to me, contact at theculturalhall.com. I do my best to respond to those. As many of you know, sometimes I respond immediately, and then it's six months down the road, but I promise you I don't ever delete them until I have actually done the thing that I say that I'm going to do. So I know that means to many that there are still emails and interviews to be done in the future. But, 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 contact at theculturalhall.com. I hope that you will reach out if you are or know someone that would be a great episode of The Cultural Hall. Because guess what? This is a great episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. I'm excited about this for several reasons. One, uh, we put a post out in the uh, Cultural Hall Facebook page talking about how we wanted to visit with someone who works with incarcerated people. And uh, our friend Jill, she said, hey, you know what? My dad, my dad does the very thing that you're asking about. So uh, at the very beginning of this, shout out to Jill who connected us with her dad, who is our guest in this episode, uh, Jim Dunnigan. Welcome in, sir. Hi, thanks for having me on your show. I'm also excited because I don't know very much about what you do. I don't know much about what the church does um, for those that are incarcerated. Uh, I know that some of what we'll talk about today will be the service that is rendered. Some will be about who you are and how you came to be even in that calling. And then, as I often do here in the Cultural Hall, some some of these things will just be kind of random questions that come to my mind as we're discussing that I go, but I wonder if, and then I'll go ahead and ask that question. Jim, let me ask you, uh, how long have you been serving in uh, the jail or is it a prison or kind of set the table for me? So it's a Salt Lake County jail. I've been serving there five years. 
Salt Lake County has two jails. I serve in the minimum security one. They have 360 beds there. For, so for five years, we've been, I've been in jail. <laughs> now, uh, you get the calling five, and, five years and some change ago about serving in the jail. Was it something that you had wanted to do, something you had done before, or, or what was that reaction like when you got that call? So our, our stake in our church had the assignment to serve in the jail, and I knew that others had served there and that they really enjoyed it. And I'd heard a little bit, of, but I really didn't know much about it. And when I was asked if we would be willing to serve and volunteer in the jail, it uh, caught us off guard. Uh, I don't know what I was expecting when I had that uh, conversation, but it wasn't to go to jail. <laughs> now, what service do we do within the jail? I'm, I'm sure that there is some sort of uh, religious service, but there's probably lots of different kinds of services that the church provides, especially for the jails here in Utah, but maybe worldwide or at least, uh, you know, in the United States wide. So I'll speak to the jail that, that I'm involved in. So each Sunday we have church services. We'd actually have four church services. They run about an hour each, a, a little bit different than the normal uh, Church of Jesus Christ services uh, because we, we can't take any food or drink in, so we don't, we don't do the sacrament. And it's more of an interactive. It's a combination of a sacrament meeting and probably a gospel essentials class. So we'd, we, we would do those on Sunday mornings uh, for half the day. And then we'd go back in the afternoon and interview the inmates one-on-one. -on -one. They can sign up for a meeting. We'd interview them and try to help them map out a plan to success and talk about while they're there, uh, what, what might need to be changed. Uh, try to give them hope in Jesus Christ and encourage them to keep coming and try to bolster them and lift them up. And then Thursdays, we had have uh, addiction recovery classes that are taught and anybody's welcome to come. And I might mention that no matter what religion you are, anybody is invited to come to the church and to the addiction recovery classes. So those are kind of the meetings that we have. And then when an inmate is getting prepared to be released, we would have a, an interview with them, kind of an exit interview and say, okay, where are you going? And we try to help line up a sober living place. Hmm. And the church will actually help financially getting them started in a sober living place. There's a monthly fee. It's like rent to stay there or help them get into a treatment program. Uh, through the church, we'd also provide food and clothing, and we would uh, meet them at the jail when possible, take them to Welfare Square here in Salt Lake City, and help them get food and clothing and, and be prepared for a chance for success. We would also give them employment opportunities. Many of the, the men that we work with, and it's strictly men that we work with, they are felons, and it's difficult to get a job when you're a felon. How come? Well, an, an employer, uh, if you put on your job application, are you a felon or have you ever been committed to a felony? Yes. It makes many employers nervous. Can you trust this person? Are they going to have the same problems working for me that they did that, that got them incarcerated? But there are employers out there that know that felons uh, can be good employees and dedicated employees. So we've put together a list of employers that will, will hire felons. And getting a job for most of these men that we work with is absolutely critical. Because when they get out, they've got fines, fees, restitution that needs to be paid. And if you, if you don't have a, a place to live and you don't have some money coming in, it's a real challenge. 
Well, and tremendous service that you give them in or in order to kind of walk them through a plan, right? We're not ever going to just fall into success as we've come out of out of jail to have an actual plan. And then also almost like an accountability partner within uh, those that serve within the jail to be able to to help them actualize their plan. Yeah. So each week when we meet with them and, and meeting with us one on one is voluntary, but many of them do. We create a plan, and then each week we meet with them and we follow up. We give them assignments. We give them assignments to read the scriptures, to say their prayers, to write to a loved one, to seek forgiveness from somebody who they've wronged, whatever. And then we follow up each week. Did you do your assignment? And then uh, many of them have been incarcerated be- before, and they know that absent a plan, we'll see them back in there, you know, mm-hmm. before too long. So to break out of that cycle, they've got to do something different. And one of the main things they got to do is get Jesus Christ in their life and get rid of their old associations with their friends and their buddies that lead them down to this spiraling path, uh, path to destruction. When you say something like they need to get Christ in their life, you know, they need they need Jesus in their life. That seems very not uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and very sort of evangelical. What What is that getting Christ in our life? We hear that, especially among the evangelicals that would say, hey, you need some Christ in your life. What, what does that mean to you? So we hope that they can learn a couple of things as they come to meet with us and in our church services. Number one, that they have a Heavenly Father and a Savior that love them. That no matter what they've done, there is hope. One of the biggest things we try to instill in them is hope, because many of them, frankly, have lost hope. They think that even when they uh, start feeling that they want to have the Savior in their lives, that, that they're too far gone. And, and that's the adversaries whisper, you know, whispering, that's his plan, whispering in their ear, which is absolutely false. The one thing I've learned, well, I shouldn't say one thing, one of the things I've learned is Heavenly Father loves all his children. No matter what they have done, he loves all of them. And there is hope for every one of us. So first of all, we try to instill hope. And then when we say, get Christ in your life, we want them to feel the Spirit. And we have men that have grown up in in gangs and know nothing but gangs all their life. And as they start coming and we feel the Spirit, you know, President Packer said, you feel the Spirit the strongest in two places, in the temple and in prison. And I have never felt the Spirit stronger than I feel in our services that we have in jail. I want to talk a little bit more about those services. You said it's sort of a mix of uh, gospel principles, I think, or gospel essentials class and a sacrament meeting. So, so what? So, what does that look like? Are, do prisoners get up on the first Sunday of the month and 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 share what they've learned and where they're at in their journey, or or what are we talking about? Okay, so we go inside the jail, past the security, into a, uh, a room that's probably thirty feet wide by twenty five feet deep, and uh, there's a uh, 180 inmates that could come to church. They divide them up into two so that they don't get too many in one time. Mm -hmm. And we'd get anywhere from 10 to 35 to a church service. But we start with an opening song, and then we have an opening prayer, and we give the inmates songbooks so they can sing along. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, music is a great way to worship and help you feel the Spirit. It really is. So we have the song and the prayer, and then we have an inmate come up, and they read a scripture. We normally have a scripture prepared, and then we ask them what that scripture means to them. And then we, we have a lesson for about 40 minutes, and it's a very interactive lesson on a basic gospel principles like repentance or, uh, you know, some of the basics. And they can speak, they can share thoughts, they'll give experiences. And so it's very interactive, and they love being able to share and to learn 
We provide each of them that want it with a set of scriptures. We have them turn to their scriptures and read. So we do that for about uh, 45 minutes, and then we'll have a closing song and a closing prayer. We always have the inmates give the opening and closing prayer. We have them read the scripture. When I can, we'll have somebody up and lead the music. Uh, even, some, if, even if they don't know how to lead the music, some of them just want to participate, and so they'll come up. And then after we have our closing prayer, we have about 15 minutes where we give priesthood blessings. Oh, wow. And many of these guys that we worked with, they've never been to a church service from our church and didn't really know what to expect, but we'll give them a priesthood blessing and some very powerful blessings have been given in our, in our time that we, we allow, we have 15 minutes to get priesthood blessings and anybody that wants one, we'll get, we'll get them one. I would imagine for some, when they first start attending, uh, it's just an opportunity to not be in their cell, right? And I don't want to downplay the service that you guys are providing to people, but, you know, knowing, hey, this is this is something that would be different, sure, I'll go check it out. Have you seen individuals who have gone from that perspective to actually engaging and then, you know, bettering their lives because of, of what they heard when they did show up? So you are exactly correct. They often will come to church service because it gets them out of their cell and allows them to associate with the other inmates, which they have limited opportunities to. They also have heard uh, many times that the Church of Jesus Christ will give, will help them financially. And so many of them will come in and say, what can I get? Mm. And, I, you know, I have a little saying that myself, they come for the money and stay for the spirit. Because <laughs> it, <laughs> you know, they, they come because they want help with rent or food or clothing or employment when they get out. But many of them, after they come and they start feeling the spirit, then they come back because I had this one inmate, I just wrote it down. He told me, I talked to him, I don't know, about two months ago. He said he lived each week to be able to come to our church service because he got his spirit back after visiting with us each week. Generally being in jail or in prison, not a necessarily spiritual place to be. And so they could come twice a week to Sunday service and addiction recovery on Thursdays. And we would recharge them spiritually. Absolutely. I'll tell you about one brother, if I can. He grew up in the uh, Ogden gangs. All he knew growing up was gangs. And uh, we're in minimum security. And so that we were told, don't worry too much about it because you're minimum. Yet as I, I started meeting with him one-on-one, -on -one, and he, he, had, he had killed three people. Wow. And so I'm like, you know, how did you, uh, you know, not to be nosy, but this is minimum security, right? Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, but he said, I had a, a defense or a prosecuting attorney that said he'd give me a chance. So they sent me here from the main jail on his eyelids, on each eyelid, he had a tattoo that said psycho, you know, tattooed on his eyelids. And when he first started meeting with us, he'd sit as far away from us because we'd sit in a row of our, we'd have about eight or nine of our branch council in there, teachers and leaders. And we'd sit in a row and he would sit as far away from us as he could. And when I first met with him and started to take notes, he was very suspicious. He thought I was going to turn it over to the police or to the prosecutor or something. And I told him I was there as a volunteer clergy, and whatever he told me was protected under that. It took a while, but he, he really opened up, and he had a change of heart. And gradually, he started where he would sit. He would move to a table closer and closer to where our council members were all lined up. Hmm. And well, he was sitting right next to the council members. And I asked him, I said, what prompted you to sit closer to us? And he said, well, I've learned that you guys are really here to help us. And I'm sitting right next to you so I can protect you in case of the other guys, any of the other people get out of hand. Oh, wow. So he went, he went from totally suspicious, not trusting to where he wanted to be our protector. Wow. 
And that's just the and that's just the heart and transition of, of one person. Which you know, I have to imagine that the work that you do within the the uh, walls of the jail is so fulfilling, but so heartbreaking. You are again absolutely correct. I we love my wife and I serving there served there. Before I started serving there, did they, not, they did not allow women to go into the jail. I was just going to ask you, it seems to me like in a jail full of all men that that would be uh, a less than great idea to have a, a woman come in and serve. Well, we, we, so we wondered about that because you're past the security. You go past those doors that clang shut and you're in there and there are, there are no guards or officers or deputies in there with us. The guard stations may be 25 feet away, but... And there's some glass so they can see in. But we're like, and my wife, they called her to be a jail specialist. And uh, they'd never allowed women to go in there. But they said, no, we've gotten approval. So we did it. And it's actually been wonderful because most of the men that we work with have never seen what a functioning couple is like, Hmm. an adult female and adult male in a relationship. As we interview them and I ask them about their parents, frankly, many of their parents are deceased or or they're divorced or separated. I've had numerous of them come up and said, I really like watching you and your wife and seeing how you interact. I never got to see that in my home. I never, I never got to see that. And so it's been rewarding to see people have a change of heart, to want to do better in their life, to get hope. And it's also been uh, heartbreaking when we see some of the guys that uh, we work with and then they get released and they either come back to jail or they get sent to prison. And we know the devastation that's reeking not only on them, but on their families. Talk about the character of your wife to be so fearless to go into something like that. That seems, you know, that seems like she's pretty, if you if you can forgive the term, pretty ballsy to be like, yeah, let's get in there. Let's do it. Hey, my wife is amazing. Uh, she's really got a lot of faith. I mean, you know, I talk to, I, I pray to, I like to say, I pray to Heavenly Father. She talks with Heavenly Father. <laughs> <laughs> and she's got so much faith and she just trusts in the Lord. Because it was when we started, just when we started, even though males had been going in there as volunteer clergy for some years, no females. So all of a sudden we take four females in, and here's all the male inmates, right? Mm-hmm. Way, way, hey, what's hey. this? Yeah. yeah. But I'll tell you, those sisters bring a wonderful spirit. And when we teach our classes, generally I'll teach once or twice a, or twice a month. I team teach with my wife. And so I'll tell you, these men, to see a, an adult female teaching them and answering their questions and sharing their testimony, those women, those sisters that serve with us, they reach those men in a way that we cannot. Hmm. You mentioned that they uh, didn't have the example necessarily of like a, a functioning marital relationship as an example in their home. Is that also something that you guys teach them? Are there practice, practical skills that the church teaches or is it all spiritual? It's, it's primarily, we teach them that just through the example and the way that we interact and the respect that we show for, for our spouses and also the responsibility that we give our, our spouses. However, in our lessons, we talk about being caring and being forgiving and sharing and, and communicating. It's all gospel-based, but certainly very practical applications. I love it. Let's take a break right here. When we come back in the uh, second block, I want to get to know who this Jim Dunnigan is, how, uh, how, where, all the things that brought him uh, to where he is serving currently in the Oxbow County Jail in the uh, state of Utah. We'll come back and we'll do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. 
Hey, it's me, Richie T. I found myself with a little bit more time on my hands, and maybe you're finding yourself in that same position. Well, allow me to introduce you to Best Podcast Consultant in Utah. I don't have the domain, and, and really I can do this wherever because I'm doing most of the classes virtually, but if you would like to reach out to me, uh, probably the simplest way is if you just do contact at theculturalhall.com, or you can find me online richietstedman.com. You can check that out. I would love to help you if you are already established in podcast or you're thinking, you know what? I've got this downtime. It's a passion project. I've always wanted to do it. You can reach out to me. You can do contact at theculturalhall.com or find me on any social media at richietstedman. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, I hope that uh, you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you would like to show financial support for the Cultural Hall for what we do, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall and you can make a pledge. There is that $5 tier and the $10 tier. That's every month and it helps to do great things like the Zoom call that is connecting Jim and I. This comfy seat that I am sitting in uh, was purchased by money or with money rather that you guys kindly supported the Cultural Hall. So thank you for all that you do first and foremost. And second, if you would like to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group that all Patreon saints are a part of, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Jim, Jim Dunnigan. Uh, let me ask you, where where are you from? Are you a Utah boy, born and raised? Utah, born and raised. I grew up in the in the Salt Lake City area. I was born in Mill Creek, which is I don't know seven miles south of Salt Lake City. Yeah, you know how you can tell you're from Utah too. It's because you said Mill Creek instead of Mill Creek. So I just <laughs> just throwing it out there. <laughs> yeah, Mill Creek, and uh, graduated from high school here, Cottonwood High School. I went to the University of Utah, got a degree in business management. And so I've lived here all my life, met a, a wonderful young woman that grew up not too far from me, but didn't know until I, or didn't meet until I went to college. And we've been married, I better get this right, uh, 46 years now. Oh my gosh, congratulations. Well, thank you. So we have six uh, beautiful grandkids. We have a, a son and a daughter, and they've given us some wonderful grandchildren. Uh, I like that you focus, uh, you sort of skip over the kids and right to the grandkids because the grandkids are the, they're what you, they're why you have kids, I'm told. They, that's the reason we let the, our kids survive their teenage years so that we can get to the grandkids. Uh, I uh, have a, a wonderful daughter and a, and a wonderful son. They're, they both have testimonies and they're just, they're wonderful. They're very caring. They're concerned about us and uh, I love them both. What do you do uh, professionally? I have a, a small business. I have an insurance agency, and we do primarily employee benefits for businesses. So I've been doing that for 40 years. And so we have a business in Taylorsville, which is a, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City. Now, it seems to me, if I'm, if I'm doing math right, 
that you uh, have been married 46 years, that you worked at the same place for 40 years. It seems to me that retirement and uh, maybe doing this service for the churches is uh, coming on to full time here pretty soon. But, you know, as a small business owner, it's kind of hard to know to when to retire. I mean, if I was working for somebody else, I'd probably have retired and take my pension, hopefully, and uh, be over on a beach somewhere right now. <laughs> but I just, every year, I just focus on keeping my business going and trying to grow it and keep it better. And I love doing it. So I, right now, I'm just going to keep working. And so much of that small business and, and has, for a lot of people within the pandemic and things like that, been hurting so bad. But I know from also kind of doing side small business that the people that you work with are truly your friends, right? These are, you've seen people grow from just a single individual to where they're married and now they've got kids and maybe even grandkids in in, in some circumstances. And so th- those small businesses are more than than a business. They are, you know, communities of people that you love. We, we try to, in, to get to know our, our clients and help them and help their employees. And, and you're right, you know, we've seen business owners come and now they pass the business to their kids and they're still clients. And and also during the pandemic, we've seen some of our longtime clients that have had to close their doors, mm-hmm. which is really, you know, we have a travel agency as one of our clients, and this has really been hard on them. Yeah, people not going anywhere. You also do some other work, though, for the state, as I understand it. I do. I'm a state representative in the Utah legislature. I've been doing that for 18 years. Hmm. So I represent Taylorsville and Kearns, a couple of Utah communities at the state capitol. And that's a 10, 11 hour days just doing that for, for seven weeks. And during that time, we'll put together a $20 billion budget and try to uh, pass a whole bunch of laws that people don't want or need. <laughs> it's a good perspective, Jim. I like that. Now, now you know your station um, by the answer to this next question. Taylorsville, the uh, ground broke recently for the Taylorsville temple that will be built and finished in the next couple of years. Now, as a state representative, are you significant enough that you were able to be invited to that groundbreaking? Well, I thought because I'm an ecclesiastical leader in this area, even though we serve in the jail, and because the temple is within my legislative district, and so I did call the the church uh, public affairs, and and I pointed that out to him. I said, I'd you know I'd like to go. Besides that, they tore down a stake center that was my stake center mm-hmm. that we've been going there for many 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 years. My stake center came down, and that's where they're putting the temple. They're not building us a new stake center. We're moving to surrounding ones. And so yeah, they got back to him and said, yeah, you're sorry, you're not going to make the cut. <laughs> And then Elder Gong, who was the one who, the apostle who oversaw the whole thing, uh, sent you an email that said, Neener, 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 Jim. Neener, Neener. Yeah. <laughs> they said, you know, they said something like, it can only be like 30 people, and that includes the general authorities. And and I, I mean, I only live a mile from it. I live, it's going to be wonderful. We're so excited to have it. But no, I didn't make the cut. So let me ask you, because, and, and this is a little more Utah-centric, and and I know people listening will be like, here they go talking about Utah. So many times the lawmakers in the state of Utah are given such a hard time because they say, well, yeah, they're just puppets for the for the church. Right. The church tells them what to do and then they and then they vote. Uh, I guess my first question would be, have you ever felt that? And then second of all, how do how do we make sure that that isn't how it works? So I, I hear that uh, somewhat frequently and. As I said, I've been in the legislature for 18 years, 
I was in the legislature for several years before I even know, knew who the church uh, government affairs person was. I didn't, you know, I didn't even know who they, they were. I have met with them upon occasion, and normally the conversation is like, you know, this is how we feel about things, and this is uh, what we feel is, is the right policy, but we understand that you have to make up your own mind and, and make the decision that you think is best for Utah and for your constituents. I've never had anybody put the squeeze or the, the pressure on me and always felt that I can vote and have voted the way that I think is the best for our state. Do you ever feel like um, the way that I describe, especially lawmakers in Utah, those those ones that I think get all the public attention is I feel like that th- these some of these individuals and, I, and gratefully no one, no specific person comes to mind. But sometimes within our faith, certainly we do this thing where we kind of take on and say, oh, we know how the church would would want us to do this. They can't say it because they, they have to stay unpolitically you know, motivated or involved. But I know what it is. And so they sort of push their own agenda under the umbrella of the church. That's how I feel like Utah politics are, those extreme things. So it happens occasionally because if, if, you, if you're doing a piece of legislation that involves certain moral things, you know, um, or habits or what alcohol is one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And you want to make some changes. Uh, many times a legislator want to say, well, the church supports this. And, and you're right. They'll say, well, they won't really come out, but they, they would say it. And it. When I follow up with the church representatives and I'd say, well, where are you on this? And they say, if we have a position, we'll make it public. You yeah. know, we, we make it public and we don't need anybody else speaking for us because we can speak for ourselves. And I said, well, you haven't taken a position on this. And they say, that's because we don't have a position. Hmm. But you're you're correct. Plenty of people want to speak for the church that are not authorized to do so. They do that sort of wink, and then they use the verbiage that we use within the church so that it sort of virtue signals that they're a member of the church. So if you're part of the team, get on board. It's a thing. I don't want to go too much more into it, but it is a thing that that I, I find so increasingly curious because I think some of the most extreme things get introduced, get introduced under the umbrella. This is what the church wanted to be. And then, like you say, when the church is sort of referenced or talked to, they go, no, we don't care or, or we don't have an opinion. Do, do whatever. Please, please stop speaking for us. Now, I, I want to know, as we kind of pivot back towards your service within the jail, which is what this whole thing is. Sorry, I get a little nerdy about politics. You have been serving for five years, if I remember correctly. Yes, right. That is typically the tenure of a, of a bishop. Is that is that something that that translates the same for branch presidencies and, and those who serve within in the jail? So I just had a, an interview this past week uh, with the stake president that's in charge of our branch. And you're correct. There's kind of a five-year uh, period of service for these ecclesiastical leaders. But I've been the branch president for a year and a half. Hmm. And the handbook says a, a president can serve for up to five years. Um, and so I served for three and a half years as a counselor and now a year and a half as president. And it's fully expected that you'll serve that full time? Uh, that, that's hard to say because when I started, our stake had the responsibility, a Taylorsville stake had the responsibility to be the host stake for the jail. That has since been changed to a Cottonwood stake, a different stake in the valley. So we hope so. And, uh, but they have migrated many of our workers from our stake to the Cottonwood stake. So it's, Several months ago, I, I was waiting for an interview with the Cottonwood Stake Presidency, and the, their, and uh, one of their counselors came out, a counselor in the stake presidency that we coordinate with and report to, and they had their stake release society president there. 
And, and he said, Brother Jim, because we only use our first names in jail. We don't want the inmates to know our last names. We don't oh. want us to, we don't want them showing up on our doorstep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm president Jim and my wife is sister and her first name. And he said, president Jim, why don't you tell sister so-and-so here? She's our state relief society president, a little bit about what you do at the jail. So I told her, and she said, how long have you served there? And I said, not long enough. Mm-hmm. And that, that's my answer. So uh, we love serving there. We, um, we enjoyed many, many church callings. We have never enjoyed anything more. The atonement is really in play in the jail. And so we hope we can stay there for a good while longer. Do you get uh, sort of lingering looks from the people in your neighborhood that are like, well, we haven't seen the Dunnigans at church for a while? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, we had a couple who had not attended church uh, for many, probably a decade or more. And uh, they decided to go to, to church. And I'd visit with them occasionally. And I ran into them into the neighborhood a while ago, and they said, you know, we're going to church. How come you aren't? <laughs> and they said, we never said, you know, we never. They said, we started going to church. What happened to you? And uh, some of our neighbors, uh, they know, but and then some will say, are you still in jail? And I said, yeah, we're still in jail. Now, there is a, a branch presidency. I've been sort of piecing this together. And then uh, your wife called to serve as a jail specialist. What other duties and roles serve within the jail? So we have uh, two addiction recovery couple that are missionaries, and they uh, serve as a mission for the Salt Lake Inner City Mission or other missions, and then they are assigned to work in the jail. And so they primarily teach the addiction recovery classes, and they also come to our church services. So those are couples. So we have two couples that do that. We also have what we call transition specialists, and they're also a couple. We have two of those. And as we have been meeting with one of these inmates for a while, and we know that they're scheduled for release, we will hand them off and have them meet two or three times with this transition couple before they're released. And the transition couple will give them their cell phone number, and it might be a Google phone number, so it's not a real cell phone number. And then we tell them when they're released from jail, call them, they will pick them up from the jail doors, and they'll take them to a safe place, to a sober living, or, or, or they'll take them to the Desert Industries where they get some food and clothing. So their purpose, a transition specialist purpose, is to do a warm handoff after these guys exit jail to their home bishop. Mm-hmm. We want them to go to church with them and, and if two or three times break the ice, sit with them, and then introduce them to the bishop. And so we really stress for the inmates when you release and by the way, as we work with these guys in jail, we don't call them inmates. We call them brothers. Yeah. So it's other brother, brother so-and-so, you know, brother Scott or whomever. We want you to call the transition specialists, uh, write down their phone number, because all of the work that we do can be undone if they call a buddy and it comes, the buddy comes and picks them up. And the buddy could be a girlfriend, a guy friend, whatever, picks them up and then they go and start using again or whatever. And then they're back in that cycle. Anecdotally, how many of these folks find themselves within the walls of the church, either converting or, you know, back worshiping or, or, or is that insignificant? It's so I would say, well, it's hard to know because we don't keep track of all of them. And our, our responsibility is really for those brothers that are in the jail currently mm-hmm. and then transition them into a home or ward bishop. And we generally don't keep track of that because we've always got a constant flow of people coming in the front door. One thing about our job, there's never a lack of uh, people to talk to and that are coming in. And so I don't know statistic wise. I do know that there's a guy that we worked with in jail for several months 
he, he got released. We helped him get into a treatment center. And last week uh, he contacted us. He's got a job and he's supposed to be baptized now. And I, I could say this too, if we had a baptismal font in jail, we'd, we could do a lot of baptisms. in there. <laughs> When I think of um, what people discuss on a national level, certainly we talk about reform. We talk a lot about police reform and we talk about jail reform and the things that, that go in to really rehabilitating these people. Do you feel like it's a change? Yeah. So a few years ago, Utah passed a criminal justice reform legislation. It was a significant piece. And we're trying to get away from, instead of just incarcerating for everything, because many times if you incarcerate somebody, they're just going to come out the same person or worse as when you put them in. And we're trying to divert them to treatment, or we're trying to help them get treatment while they're incarcerated. And so there's a program that we have in Salt, in Salt Lake County, and it's a, a drug treatment program. It's a, a, a 90-day program, and we encourage them to participate and accomplish something while they're in jail. And then if they do that, they can qualify for a housing voucher upon their release from jail. They can get dental care. They can get medical care some things that they don't get if they don't graduate. So now at the same time, there are people that need to be incarcerated, that absolutely need to be incarcerated. And if they aren't, they're going to go out and harm others. But So you, you try to figure out on a risk score, and this is not my job, but this is the courts and the prosecutors and the defense attorneys, mm-hmm. try to figure out what the risk is for this person. Do you incarcerate for how long? And really have an emphasis on getting them into treatment if they are incarcerated. Do you ever run into some of those that you would work with within the walls of the jail, outside of the walls of the jail? I, I do. We are not supposed to have contact after they're released. You, you just think through that, right? I don't want my wife to open the door and surprise, you remember us from the jail? Because we don't know if they're still on a good path, if they've gone back to a bad path. And some of them have been on some very bad paths, very bad paths. And so we hand them to our transition specialists, and then they give them a transition uh, a handoff. But yes, I, uh, we have a community event called Taylorsville Days that I, I serve as a volunteer chair. It's a big city festival. We get 30,000, 40,000 people that gather every year. And almost every summer, I'm the chairman of that, so I'm, get, I'm up there inter, uh, introducing the entertainment, the bands, and things like that. How somebody come up and say, President Jim or Brother Jim, do you remember me? I was in the county jail. And, <laughs> and I... And I, it gives me pause for a moment, but it's also rewarding. Like this one guy, he had his mom with him. And I said, how's he doing? And she said, he's doing fantastic. I just want to thank you uh, for everything you did. Another one, I had a legislative event and it was a, a dinner, a buffet dinner. And I was going through the buffet line. And here's one of the guys that I worked with that was serving the food that was you know, preparing and cooking. And uh, he told me that he wanted to go work for his dad. His dad was a chef. And there he was working alongside his dad, and his dad came up and told me the same thing. Thanks for everything. So, yeah, I we do once in a while. Yeah, just just sort of as a side jaunt. So uh, I used to work in the Salt Lake County Jail, the big one. Um, and actually, I don't know that it's bigger than the one that you work in. No, it, it definitely is. The one that you were in, we call the Metro Jail. Mm-hmm. It's the adult uh, detention center. They have 2,000 or so inmates there versus our 360. And uh, I, I worked within uh, the library there at the jail. And so I would work alongside inmates, uh, and it was the female inmates. And uh, I, I, several years later, was I, and I became really good friends with these people that I kind of worked alongside. 
uh, maybe three, four years later, I'm at a uh, 7-Eleven just getting myself a beverage. And I see this woman who I'm like, I know this woman and she sees me and she, you know, she very visibly on her face, you know, said, you know, indicates, oh, I, I know him. I couldn't figure it out. You know, it didn't come right to yeah. my mind. And and she had gone through the line for, before me and and went outside and waited for me. And I was like, yeah, I know that I know you. How do I know you? And she's like, well, I didn't want to have the discussion in front of everyone, but we worked together when I was incarcerated. And I was like, oh, yeah. And she, you know, she had, you know, picked herself up from where she was and had really made the changes necessary to to be not only happy, but also not back in jail. And And, and I just was... I was just thinking, you know, for someone who works with so many people, you have to see people on the outside and have that moment of, do I know you from? Hmm. See, are you a former legislator? No, no, I was. (laughs) The other thing is when they're in jail, they're all in blue jumpsuits. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they don't differentiate with clothing. They have orange shoes on and uh, blue jumpsuits. And so when you see them outside in their street clothing or something, and also inside, they don't have any rings. You know, no piercings. Mm-hmm. They have holes, you know, where where stuff used to be. You can tell. But then when you see them outside, some of them got their, their rings and things back in. They look quite a bit different. And the obvious joke that we both should have made and, and we should kick ourselves that we didn't make the joke is that you said, are you a, a former legislator or a, a prisoner? And, you know, some would say one, some would say the other. Maybe the... <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's take another break. When we come back in the third block, we've got three questions that we ask everyone. I'll ask those of you and we'll round out a couple other things. We visit with Jim Dunnigan back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Hey, this is Dan, the laptop man from PC Laptops. I know we're going through a lot right now. Many states are quarantining people to their homes so that they have to work remotely. One of the things that's really important is to have a computer that's functioning correctly one with a good webcam, one that's fast so you can be productive, one that has a good quality screen because you're going to be on this all day remotely. Computer supply has been strained because manufacturing has almost stopped. At PC Laptops, we've secured a limited quantity of laptop and desktop computers that are backed with a lifetime service guarantee. They're available for you right now in limited quantity. The great thing about PC Laptops is this. Once you buy your new computer, If you have any problems or questions, we're here to take care of you. Also, to make it really easy right now, we've arranged with some banks to offer 12-month special financing. Get into PC Laptops right now, because at PC Laptops, we're here for you, and we're in this together. PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not a part of the Cultural Hall back row, encourage you to join that group. It's free, and it's on Facebook, and it's a bunch of uh, super fans of the Cultural Hall. It is free. You do not have to make a donation to be a part of that group. And that's a great place when when we want to talk about tangential things, things that maybe we make an off-reference, uh, you know, like uh, Jim mentioned, Taylorsville Days. And we wanted to talk about Taylorsville Days on a whole post within the Cultural Hall back row. That's the kind of stuff that we do there. I encourage you to find it, and then we'll let you into that group. Just search on Facebook, The Cultural Hall, back row and we will see you there now jim uh you didn't know this but i have an email that i want to share with you uh this is from your daughter jill she sent this to me she says uh hey he just called me and he told me that you're going to interview you or interview him this is uh, obviously talking about you jim she says i'm excited to hear this podcast so as a joke 
and the only people in their ward and even our family tease my parents about this calling. I've mentioned them several times in my home ward, and I always say that my parents are in jail on Sundays and will be home when they are let out. They love being in jail, and as their daughter, I'm happy that they love going to jail too. Then she goes on. She says, so anyways, I can't remember how long he's actually been in this calling. It first started out as a counselor in the presidency, and then he was called to be the branch president. Said, my dad has always been a very dignified and professional person and has enjoyed all of his callings in his life. So this leads up to this story. A year ago this past December, he made arrangements for the branch presidency and missionaries to go on a tour of the Utah State Prison. He also invited my husband and me to go on the tour. As we were out on the tour, we were able to go into the gym and chapel. As the prison guards were telling us about the gym, my dad was able to talk to some of the inmates that were there. The contact with them was limited to fist pumps. So here we are in the gym and my dad proceeded to talk to the inmates and tell them how he played basketball in a church prison league and used to play against the inmates back in the early 70s. The inmates couldn't believe that he used to do that when he was in Young Men's. As my husband and I were trying to listen to the guards about the history of the gym and how it's used, my attention turned to my dad. In my 40 years of existence at that time, I saw my dad talk and interact with the inmates in a way that I have never seen him interact with someone before. Maybe it was because of it was ca- uh, because of his calling, the compassion that he has developed for these incarcerated men. I honestly don't know. I watched him talk to these men who are serving some serious time with love and compassion. He smiled and he joked with them and he spoke to them like they were regular people outside the prison system, not like a criminal doing some hard time. That is something I, that I am so thankful to have witnessed. She goes on, I've seen him and my mom commit so much of their time to serving these men in jail. I've seen them speak about these inmates with love and compassion. I've seen them weep when the inmates return after they've been released. I've seen them miss the inmates and serving them. I've seen the best come out of my mom and dad with this calling, and it's definitely changed them for the better. They are in this calling for a reason, and it's even longer than they should be serving. They should have been released a couple times, but Heavenly Father knows that this is where they are supposed to be. Your daughter Jill sent that. Wow, that is so humbling and so special. Thanks for sharing that. I hope she doesn't mind. I didn't ask her permission. Sorry, Jill. (laughs) Yeah, Jill's, Jill's a sweetheart. She really is. So we went on a, I took our branch on a tour of the prison. I, I should say I arranged it with the Department of Corrections because a number of our brothers we work with end up going to prison. And, uh, and we had one recently that, uh, well, earlier this year that we worked with and he thought he was going to go into treatment. Instead, he went to prison and uh, he came up a, a few months ago eligible for parole, but he needed to get into a treatment center. So he stayed incarcerated for several months. He contacted our transition specialist. I was able to help arrange him to get into treatment. So about a month ago, he got out of prison. He's in treatment and he's doing well. But just quickly, we went on this tour of the prison. And you know, the Draper prison has been there for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And I asked the, our, the officers that were taking us on the tour, I said, can we look at the gym? And they took us down to the gym and it was like going back in time. I swear <laughs> that gym has not changed for 50 years. And I did play in a uh, county recreation basketball league 
and you'd play each team twice. And at that time, the Utah inmates had a, had a team. Their games were always at home. They never let them go out to (laughs) away games, but we played down there a couple of times. And one time we played them, I I played center for our team. And uh, just a few days after we played, we got, we saw in the paper that the center and a forward had escaped that uh, we had played against. And they don't do that anymore. They don't take teams in there to play, but (laughs) that gymnasium, that was, that was going back decades in time. And it was sweet. And yeah, I did talk to the inmates. One thing I've learned from this, this calling, this opportunity to serve is not to judge people. You just love them. I, I, I had an opportunity to have a lunch with Elder Stevenson, Bishop Casse, Casse, I see the presiding bishop mm-hmm. about four years ago. And I was telling a little bit about what we do. And I said, they said, what have you learned? I said, we can't judge. You just have to love them. And they said, thank you. That's exactly right. Heavenly Father's going to sort all the other stuff out. We just we just have to love and uh, remember that they're Heavenly Father's children like the rest of us. You know, we, we share that special moment within your family. I have to think that what you do creates special moments for the families of those who are incarcerated as, as you help them, as you help rehabilitate them, as you help nurture them, and that you're not judging them. What, what sort of impact does it have on the families that are on the outside? Imagine that you're a parent and you have a, a son, maybe in the early 20s, late 20s, early 30s, that has just gotten on the, uh, the wrong path and now has ended up in jail. And you've been trying to encourage the son when they were before they were incarcerated to go to church to get on a different path. And so I've had occasion to meet with some of the parents uh, that have inmates in jail, and they are just hoping that their sons won't be written off, that somebody will try to reach them and encourage them to come to church and to interact and touch them. And so if you can do that, you know how appreciative those parents are, the same as we would be for one of our children. And these are all Heavenly Father's children. So these are these are parents that, um, I mean, some of these guys, they've stolen from their parents and their parents have turned them in to feed their drug habit because most of the men that we work with are in there for addiction issues, mm-hmm. drugs or alcohol, uh, some for sex offenses. But uh, many of them, have taken a lot from their parents and not uh, given them good things in return. And, and some of their, their parents are just like, okay, like, we can't do any more until you realize you need to change. But if you look at the men that we work with, the brothers, most of them will be categorized as childless adults. And yet the majority of them have children. They just don't have legal custody. So under the law, they, they don't have children, but many of them have children. And imagine if your dad's incarcerated and many times their, their baby mama or their wife, their girlfriend who's with their child, she uses and she's still using while the guy's incarcerated. And it just wrecks havoc upon generations. So if you can take and change one life, and if you can get one brother to get sober, and they don't, you don't get cured, but you can manage your addiction and get their posterity down a better path, then you, you have really changed a, a, a lot. It puts in a whole different perspective that idea that it, if it's so be that you should labor all your days and bring but one soul. I mean, there there never really is just that one soul. By bringing one soul, the exponential growth of just one individual is pretty remarkable. It is. If you if you save the one, then you have a good chance of saving their children. You know, one of the guys we worked with when he was fourteen, his grandma threw a birthday party for him. And at the birthday party, uh, she turned him on to meth. That was his, his 14th birthday present. 
So he's been in and out of jail a lot. He made quite a turnaround as we worked with him, quite a turnaround. And if we can break that cycle and get him out of that, and it's not easily done. And it can take several tries from these guys to come back to jail and then to get more committed, more committed to break through. But many of them are successful. and It's just something they have to manage their whole life. I love that to kind of end this. One of the things that you that you talked about at the very beginning was the idea of hope that, you know, you are you are giving the hopeless hope. I, I wish for you to maybe end on that a little bit, how how you're able to do it, how when maybe your better judgment would tell you, no, this is a hopeless situation. How, how, how are you able to, to find that hope through Jesus? So that's a good question. And when I first started, I felt, I felt kind of like how you just put it, you know, here's somebody that's committed a lot of crimes or a felon, maybe even killed somebody. What, what hope is there? But as you start teaching the gospel and feeling the spirit and realizing that Heavenly Father does love them, and that here's ch- they're his children, and they're his sons, and he wants them back, you understand that there's hope. And there's a, a scripture in, Pro- in Proverbs that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And what we have to do is put our limited viewpoint, you know, of, of how we see things, we can't see with our earthly eyes. We have to try to see with Heavenly Father's spiritual eyes and with our eternal lives and try to help these brothers realize their potential. Jim, there's three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I will ask those of you right now. The first question we actually already know the answer to. The first question, though, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I do. I'm a branch president of the Oxbow Jail. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either make one up, or pick one that exists, what would you pick? Well, let me think about that. Okay, branch president of the Oxbow Jail. (laughs) And then the final question that we ask everyone, and we ask you to interpret it however you would like, but the question remains is, what is your favorite part of your faith? So the eternal plan for the family. Family is so important to me. You know, we have heavenly parents. I have, we have an earthly family. And what gives me great comfort is knowing that I can be with my family forever. And my beautiful daughter that you've read her email to you and my son and my grandkids and my wonderful wife and my parents, that's the thing that gives me hope that I can be with my Heavenly Father again and have my family with me. Jim, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back row.